Hi, I'm Dr. Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and the co-founder of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. This webinar is part of our Survive and Thrive series and it's entitled Creating Your Family Safety Plan. We have 22 experts who are going to speak today and we really hope you enjoy it. Many thanks for your attention. Welcome to our 147th webinar uh, over uh, almost 11 years. Uh, we're so grateful to have you join us uh, for creating your family safety plan. It's part of our coronavirus care community of practice. Uh, I'm Dr. Charles Dam. I'll be your coordinator today, and I'm just so grateful to have such a terrific group of speakers. So I'll move quickly through our introductory uh, elements so that we can get right to the meat of the issue. But I need to remind you, and I'm on slide three for those of you that have the slides to make sure to turn your WebEx volume to the max, your computer volume to the max, and your external speaker volume to the max. If you have difficulties, uh, go to the participants window and click on requ the request phone icon and uh, uh, Kyle Kemp, our chief of staff, will give you a uh, uh, toll dial-in number. Uh, we've been doing this for, as I say, almost 11 years, uh, 147 months in a row, and we've been so grateful to have the voice of the patient and voice of the family uh, to start our webinars and to close our webinars. And I'm really grateful to have Jennifer Dingman, uh, who is a, a national patient safety leader. She's a winner of the of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. She's been a co-author with us in national patient safety medical journals, peer-reviewed journals, and in national guidelines. Uh, and she is a, a tireless champion for patient safety and family safety. And we meet every other uh, Saturday with a group uh, for over 10 years uh, to uh, focus on patient safety issues. And she was one of the one of the team members that had an impact of uh, tens of thousands of lives and tens of billions of dollars of savings over the last 10 years. So we're so grateful to have Jennifer uh, start us off. Jennifer, would you start us? Thank you for your kind introduction, Dr. Denham. It's been my honor and pleasure to work with you and hope to work with you in the future as well. These webinars are so important for, for patients and families as well as providers, clinicians, and frontline workers. Today, I'm very excited about today's program. We're going to learn more. I'm very thankful that you're all here listening and, and watching our webinar. I urge you to please uh, share the recording and share future links to future webinars with your family, friends, and colleagues. Um, when this is, uh, hopefully when this pandemic is all over and done with, we have, we will all have learned so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Denham and your team for bringing this to us and helping to keep us safe. Um, I'll turn it back over to you and we'll have a wonderful program today. Again, thank you all for being here. Great, Jenny, and we'll have you react at the end, as you usually do. Uh, just briefly about the uh, MedTech Global program. It's part of uh, TMIT Global. I started about 35 years ago. Our purpose is uh, statement is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our, our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the community. And we try to live the values of I-CARE, I-C-A-R-E, 
integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. That's our compass heading. Uh, I won't read the slide, but it's on slide seven are our disclosure statements and no product, service, or technology will be discussed. These are entirely free and uh, they are, uh, they are uh, paid for by uh, personal philanthropy, family philanthropy. Um, on slide eight, just to give you a background, we have a network, a collaborative network of 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities, and over the last 35 years have uh, grown to have 500 subject matter experts that are doctors, nurses, nurse preventionists, uh, pharmacists, uh, professional administrators, aerospace engineers, and a whole host of, uh, of experts, as well as frontline experts uh, and people like Jenny Dingman. On slide 10, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that there are 16 industry sectors, essential critical infrastructure workers. You as an audience, this whole program started for us when we, when this coronavirus crisis hit. No one was training the families nor the workers in the majority of these infrastructure, uh, uh, um, uh, industries. There's 16 there. Healthcare is just one of them, but uh, emergency services, information technology, transportation. And then recently, uh, the administration uh, has announced, Homeland Security has announced that teachers are now also part of the essential critical infrastructure, which kind of changes the whole dynamic of making sure uh, how to keep them safe at work. And so an article in August, which uh, we have up on slide 11, kind of tells a little bit of that story. What happened was when we, when this crisis hit, we recruited uh, some of our best and top experts who you see from a number of top medical centers and all ages, uh, in, in, including people from lower school, middle school, upper school, colleges, Stanford, Harvard, uh, UCI, UCSF, a number that are represented. Uh, and we put together a team of now over 60 leaders, which are on slides 12 and 13, in addition to uh, speakers and those that we interviewed and teams that were part of two Discovery Channel movies that we produced, uh, one called Chasing Zero, Winning the War on Healthcare Harm, the other Surfing the Healthcare Tsunami, and you'll see a number of the names and pictures there, Sully Sullenberger, Dennis Quaid, uh, a number of the uh, original astronauts, uh, Professor Pistonson, who is my partner at Harvard, who just passed away, Jim Collins, who is the leader of, a uh, 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 business leader uh, and uh, best-selling author. We use the model of a community of practice, and and I'm going to keep this brief, but uh, over the years, we've put together a number of communities that all teach, all learn together. We convene, connect, celebrate, create, and help try to change the world. And, and you're now part of that by attending this webinar. They're totally free. And this coronavirus care community of practice is focused on families. And what we found out was families of doctors, nurses, EMS leaders, law enforcement leaders, like the two great ones we have on today, their families want to be trained, uh, and we found out that the public wants to be trained with the same level of detail. So this is more than Reader's Digest level content. We're giving you the real medical uh, research and evidence-based uh, best practices, and it'll be more technical for those of you that are in the general public than you would typically see, but this appears to be what our audience wants. On slide 16, if you go to our website, uh, this program and a number of programs we've created on masks, on social distancing, uh, on uh, a step-by-step -step approach, building these plans that we're going to talk about today can all be found at medtechglobal.org uh, slash coronavirus response. And so you can pull that right off of the, uh, the page. Okay, so now let's talk about what we're going to do today. 
This is the first of a two-part, probably a two-part program uh, of creating your family safety plan because this is such an important issue. We couldn't cover it all in just 90 minutes, but we'll introduce this to you. The ideas are, well, what are the science behind the risk to your family? How can we re improve readiness? That's readiness if someone gets sick or, or uh, has in contact with the virus. How do we respond when they do? How do we rec rescue them if they get very serious symptoms? Then how do we safely recover? How can our family recover? And how do we help other families recover after a, a, an event, especially if someone gets severely ill? And then resilience is something that our law enforcement leaders today probably will address. This is what we call an, when we work on, uh, on active shooter events and anti-terrorism of hardening the target, making your family a harder target for the virus. And then finally, we've got a great panel of college students and uh, 20-somethings and 30-somethings to help us really understand how they might help take the lead. So today, we've got 22 speakers. It's uh, in 90 minutes. I know that's a lot in that period of time. You'll each speak briefly, but you'll be able to watch uh, this program and additional content on the website, which will be produced next week and be able to be streaming. Um, and so just to give you some of the building blocks of what we will cover today is that uh, I'm just going to recap our last two webinars. I highly recommend that you go back and watch them. The, fir the, the, the first of the last two were Coming Home Safely. It's part of our Survive and Thrive series, and we addressed a deep dive on how to come home and not give the virus to your family members, and then how to prepare to go back to work or school or to where you pray or where you are at, at Boy Scouts or whatever your activities are, and make sure that you're, you're maintaining the best practices to keep your family safe. Then our second to the, then our last webinar was Keeping Our Kids Safe. We took a deep dive on a step-by-step -step approach uh, to address what we're doing in our families. The reason I mention this is, is that these are building blocks that will be in the creating a plan. So when we address coming home safely, and I'm on slide 21, uh, we talked about the hot zone where we can be exposed, the warm zone where we disinfect or we're in our car, and the safe zone, which is hopefully where we do, do not have the virus. Unfortunately, if someone gets sick, or they're in, and they have to be isolated or in quarantine, you may have to have an island of risk right in the center of your safe zone at the home, and we'll be addressing this in detail. I won't read these slides because they're in the prior webinars, but I, for those that haven't watched them, go back and look at them. We address the best practices in the hot zone of the social distance and ventilation and uh, putting on PPE, et cetera. We address the warm zone, which is where we disinfect. And we really highly recommend that everyone have a disinfection area when you're coming home and when you're leaving. And especially, you're going to have to have a disinfection area if someone is in your home, then now more and more people are either quarantined or isolated. And we need to kind of think that through. And the safe zone is how do we maintain the safest area for our kids, safest area for those at high risk with, uh, with underlying conditions, but we're having an exploding number of younger people that have no underlying conditions and they're getting sick. So uh, the numbers are changing. That's why they call it a novel virus. In our last webinar, we addressed 
the issue of, of creating a plan, and this was keeping our kids safe. And what we basically do, and this is what uh, Chief Adcox, who's one of my just wonderful partners, one of the best men I've ever met, is one of our speakers today. We work together in the science of threat safety science. When we look at the math of threats, threats are mathematical uh, likelihood to cause harm. Vulnerability means what are your weaknesses that can be exploited by those threats, and unless you know your vulnerability, you don't know your risk. And the risk is what is the mathematical probability of harm? And the, and the real takeaway here, and I'm a systems engineer as well as a doctor, and I'm not going to get into a bunch of jargon, but the bottom line is we need to reduce our vulnerability to any threat, and when we do that, we reduce our risk. So last webinar, we went through a four-step process. First is identify each family member's threat profile. What are the threat profiles of those that you live with? And we're going to talk to our college students today about the fact that they've got to have two plans. They have to have a plan where they're at school with their roommates or their housemates, and then there's the plan home, and then there's the transition from school back home. And a lot of them are contemplating, do I go home for Thanksgiving or, or, or Christmas? Step two is to identify and follow the local coronavirus threats. Here in, I'm going to show Orange County, where I live in California, how our numbers have changed. You can't put a plan together and execute a plan unless you really know what the background infection rate in your community is. If you don't know what it is, you really can't adjust your plan properly. A number of us are pilots on this uh, on this uh, webinar, uh, and I've worked very closely with Sully Solenberger and others that are jet pilots. I'm a private jet pilot. When we put together a flight plan, we always look at the weather, we always look at the risk profile and the mission or the flight we're going to take, and that adjusts our flight plan. We have to do the same thing uh, here. Step three is to develop that family safety plan, which we'll address today. And then there's fly, the, then there's after you plan the flight, then it's sticking to the plan, which we'll cover in our second part next month. And so step one is identify the threat profile. Again, I'm not going to read the slides. Go back to our last webinar. Our last webinar, we take a deep dive at how you would go step by step to evaluate your family's risk. And we know from pregnant moms to those that are over 65. We know there's age-related underlying conditions. Obesity is an underlying condition. There are a number that put us, our family members, at greatest risk. Our plan needs to be mapped against that risk. If we've got five kids that are under the age 10, we've got a totally different plan than if we have three seniors that are over 65 and one young person. So you need to put together a good idea of what the vulnerabilities are, and then you need to look at the outside threats. Those are your inside threats. What is the infection rate in your community? And by those two, you can then identify, well, what are the steps that I'm going to take? And again, I won't read step two to you. Now, slide on slide number 32, last month uh, here in Orange County, our testing positivity percent was at 5%. And we were at a higher tier that here in California of, of risk. And uh, our, over a seven-day average and a seven-day lag, they calculated how many people are getting infected per 100,000 people. Well, now, today, as of this morning, and I created this slide some more, this morning for you, you can see that our three-day average, our seven-day average has dropped at 3.6, and our positivity percent is 3.1. However, we had a bit of a bump in our infection rate, and we have to wait a certain period of time for that rate to come down. What does that mean to your plan? You need to watch this, because if you see 
peaking numbers, which we see, let's say, in New York City, and we discussed this with one of our college students yesterday, when we see that going up, we know that there's a really, uh, that we have to behave in a different way. So you want to reduce your vulnerability. So watch our, our, our last webinar to go through this step-by-step -step approach at talking about vulnerabilities, and you can see I'm racing through the slides because these are the slides from last month that I, I, I would hope that you would go back and take a look at. Now, today, we're talking about the family health safety plans, readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. Readiness is preparing with a regular review of what's going on, the latest science, what is the community saying, and being ready in case somebody gets infected, somebody gets sick, or somebody gets exposed. Response means, okay, now somebody's either infected, sick, or exposed, what are we going to do? And your plan is tied to... The, the risk profile of the people, uh, if you're college students that are super healthy with uh, no underlying conditions, it might be a different plan than having three 65-year-olds in your home and a 99-year-old like my mom who's 99. Rescue is understanding what to do if somebody gets sick. You've got to have a plan. It's very stressful. If somebody starts to get sick, you need to know what to look for, and then you need to know how to go to the emergency department. And remember, you're going to be in the parking lot. So you better send your family member with their medical records if you have them, their medications in a bag, and have a, a charged phone to talk to the doctors because the emergency experience is totally different than it's ever been. Recovery is really important. How are we going to recover safely and get back to normal? So, uh, and uh, Mr. David Bashk is just one of my favorite people on the planet. He's my partner in teaching kids uh, uh, the, uh, the, this, the area of MedTech and what we're doing. And he's just taken a break from school. So I will go through and then re-review at the end some of the things I'll cover right now. But you need to customize your family checklist to the real life scenarios that can happen to you. This grid is, a, is an eye chart, but we'll go through it uh, uh, today briefly. We'll go through it in more detail as we get uh, in our next webinar. But you need to look at the family scenarios of when you're not exposed and you have no test, a negative test, you're probably very susceptible, you don't have any antibodies. What about when you're exposed to an infected person but you haven't had a test yourself? What if you've been infected and you're asymptomatic but you've never had symptoms? What if you're infected and pre-symptomatic before symptoms? And you can see each of these categories. These are the scenarios you need to be prepared for. And the worst is at the bottom on the right. What if someone's infected, they're in ICU, they're on life support? What do you need to know about what to do with your family and be prepared? So what we'll do next month is go in a deep dive on every one of these scenarios so that you can build a plan that will work. But we really need to understand the principles of the plan first. I just highlighted exposure to the infected person and no test. What do you do? Now we're opening the valve up on, on activities. This is going to, we're going to see this. What about infected and asymptomatic? And so you can see we've organized the activities and what you need to know for each of the five R's for readiness, response, rescue, recovery, resilience. Again, I'm just giving you the highlights in an overview. We'll take a deeper dive. So it's really a great pleasure for me to introduce our first responder and educator panel. Uh, we have a pediatrician, a practicing pediatrician uh, in, uh, in the community who's going to cover one of the acute things that can happen to your kids. Paul, that's uh, Dr. Barto Owens. Paul Bataya is an EMT. He's here at UCI. He's a terrific educator with us, teaches med tech. 
He got COVID. He's going to tell you why, how important the plan is. Matt Ho Horace is the chief security officer for the Mayo Clinic, where I had my fa a faculty position. I was a professor of health systems engineer, uh, engineering, and where I did subspecialty work in uh, intraoperative surgical radiation. We have uh, Dr. Casey Clements, who's the head of emergency medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and he's also the head of staff safety for the entire Mayo Clinic. Uh, David Vashk, who's an award-winning teacher uh, and partner here in Orange County, who's going to help you understand how uh, the, the, the chief family officers uh, 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 really need to focus on building these these checklists. Heather Foster is a nurse, pre nurse preventionist and an award winner as well, had won the Pete Conrad uh, Award for Patient Safety. And Chief Adcox, Chief Bill Adcox, is the Chief of Police for the University of uh, Texas uh, at Texas Medical Center, and he's the Chief Security Officer uh, at uh, MD Anderson, and a wonderful colleague and a real pioneer in, uh, in threat safety science. That brings me to uh, uh, Dr. Greg Boats. Dr. Greg Boats is a close partner of mine and Dr. and Chief Adcox. Uh, he is a professor of uh, acute care and anesthesiology at the University of Texas, MD Anderson. He's also the Chief Medical Security Officer for MD Anderson with Dr. Uh, with uh, Chief Adcox. And he's an adjunct professor at Stanford uh, where he'll get on a flight and fly uh, out here to California on a monthly basis to teach residents how to save lives and ride the helicopter and a life flight. So he's he is, as Chief Adcox is, one of my heroes. So Dr. Boats is in the ICU today, and I'll ask Kyle Kemp to play the videotape uh, of, or the audio tape of uh, Dr. Boats. Dr. Boats, thank you so much for taking time to go through the critical importance of the family safety plan. Let's start with readiness. Sure, it's great to be with you again today. Uh, in preparation for a family plan, readiness is an important state. And readiness really is uh, knowing whether your family is ready to follow the plan. And so that takes things like a, a group um, reinforcement of the elements of your family plan and deliberate practice to make sure that you're actually able to accomplish things. I think one of the biggest mistakes that people have is they believe they can follow a plan, but they haven't practiced yet, and so they don't know if there are any gaps in their ability, and their plan may fall apart. Great. And we talk about response. So responding if someone uh, is infected and sick or notified that they might have been exposed to someone who's infected, and we have to address quarantine versus isolation and being able to respond if someone's sick. Well, that's right. Really, response is having your plan in place so that if the need arises, you can activate it and use it effectively. And knowing how to go from, let's say, normal operations to implementing your plan is an important step, recognizing and detecting the need to, to activate your plan. You know, we are so proud to work with you, and you're one of our heroes as a critical care doctor, probably taking care of some of the sickest patients uh, uh, in the country. Rescue is absolutely critical, and knowing when we might need to take a loved one or a roommate uh, into the emergency department and being prepared for the whole process is critical. What message do you have there? Well, I think it's really important to know when your initial family plan is not working. If someone is showing signs and symptoms of worsening breathing, 
or fever or other symptoms that would indicate that they're becoming more sick, it's important to activate perhaps the next stage of your plan, which is seeking additional help, whether that's in contacting your physician's office or going to an emergency room to be seen. And so critical to have medical records and medications and being able to provide a history is vital, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I think that's a key element of the plan is having readiness to move on to the next step when your sort of shelter-at-home plan is no longer effective. And now when we talk about recovery, when we're either through quarantine or through isolation or recovering from, uh, from COVID-19, one of the critical issues is to be able to safely return to some more new normal, isn't it? Well, that's absolutely right. In working in emergency management situations in many organizations, I have recognized that one of the challenges is going from emergency operations back to normal operations. Many organizations struggle with that, and they remain stuck in this cycle of maintaining an emergency stance. And so recovery is a key element of returning to your normal operations. And recognizing that we might get reinfected or we could be re-exposed. So finally, resilience. And we talk about target hardening. Can you explain that to us and how, in the context of a family and, and having resilience and hardening our target to threats? Well, sure. I think that one of the goals in having a family plan for no matter what the issue is using deliberate practice to not only practice those steps that are important in our family plan, but recognizing that there may be situations that challenge our plan in different ways, and recognizing that we have to roll with the punches, if you will, and have um, a backup plan or a, a stance where the family can react to any changes effectively without falling apart. In, in my circumstance, no matter what the challenge, whether it's infectious disease like COVID-19 or natural disasters like hurricanes. We're in hurricane season currently in Texas. Or even things like uh, loss of power or uh, resources uh, in the home. We have to have a plan for uh, going on to emergency status, returning to normal status, but also recognizing that we have to be flexible enough to respond to whatever the wave that may hit us next might do to our plan. And that resilience is a key function or a key feature in highly reliable teams and organizations, and more so in highly reliable families. Great. Well, thank you so much. We sure, sure appreciate uh, all you've contributed to developing uh, MedTech and, uh, and accommodating this new challenge and making that part of the program. Thank you. We're so grateful for your input. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be a participant and a contributor to this effort. Our, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Brittany Bartow-Owens. She's a community pediatrician, and it's embarrassing to say that I've known her since she was a little girl. Uh, she's now a practicing pediatrician, and I've asked her to address the issue of one of the most severe things that your children can uh, experience uh, in terms of uh, uh, the COVID-19 infections. Uh, Kyle, would you please play her tape? Brittany, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of time with us today regarding kids. 
Can you tell us about this more serious and severe condition that can happen to children, MISC? Sure. So MISC is a multi-system inflammatory uh, syndrome in children, and it it presents differently than COVID. So the primary COVID infection you really think of is your flu and cough congestion, sometimes vomiting and diarrhea. Multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children occurs about two to four weeks after the initial infection, and it's an inflammatory reaction, we think, to the actual infection. So if you're thinking of inflammation, the way that it presents is related to that. So you always have a fever 100% of the time. You, about half the time, have a rash. You think inflammation of the skin. Then you have inflammation of the eyes. You'll get red eyes, inflammation of the GI tract, belly pain, vomiting, diarrhea. Those are your primary symptoms with the multisystem inflammatory syndrome. So if you're concerned at all that your child is having symptoms two to four weeks after their primary infection, I would go to the, your doctor right away. The reason that this is so important is because it is a very severe disease. Your children all have to be hospitalized, and about two-thirds of them are actually in the ICU requiring wow. intensive care. Um, and something else to think about is the, the cardiac impact of it. Um, they're finding that the echoes in the hospital, about 50% of them are abnormal. And even following these kids over time, they're still continuing to find some abnormalities. So it's it's something that needs urgent um, evaluation if you're at all concerned that, that your child has this. And this is such a new disease that we really don't know the long-term ramifications. So it's probably pretty important to keep your kids as safe as possible from being infected, even though out in the media they may talk about it not being very common. If they do get it, it's pretty serious. Yes, and the only way to prevent is to prevent the initial COVID infection. Once you have this inflammatory process, all you can do is supportive care. Another thing to note is that these kids are generally well children. They don't have chronic illnesses. They're not sick kids to start with. About two-thirds of the kids hospitalized for this um, syndrome had no complications at all, had no prior medical conditions. And the biggest one that they did find was actually being overweight, which is something a lot of children have at baseline. Right. So, Brittany, as we talk about putting together a family safety plan and we think of our kids and especially the little ones, you just want to review for us what we need to keep in mind regarding quarantine and isolation and how long to plan to be caring for a child? Right. So I think now that we're having our kids back in daycares, back in schools, back in social gatherings where they're getting exposed, it's good to come up with a plan knowing what the actual rules are. So if your child has a positive COVID test, they need to stay in the house for 10 days, and you, the parent who is exposed to the positive, is a 14-day quarantine. Now, this, this is only true in some cases. So if a teenager is able to quarantine themselves with their positive, you know, the parent is quarantined for 14 days and the patient is quarantined for 10 days alone in their room. If you have a little kid, like a two-year-old, who ends up having a positive test, they are quarantined for 10 days, but since obviously there's no separation between the parent and the child, the parent's quarantine actually starts on day 10 of the child's illness, so it's 14 days in addition, a full 24 days. So I think when we're thinking about family plans, it's really important to recognize how long you would really be out if your child ends up getting COVID. Wow, that is so important for planning, especially when, and these are kids that are under 24 months? I mean, any any child that's not able to take care of themselves. Okay. The, the parent isn't able to isolate themselves from their child. So a full 24, 24 days. Wow. That's, wow. That's what they're doing. So do you think it's important that families with children uh, put together one of these safety plans? Yeah. I mean, 
ultimately, like, it's very likely that at some point during this pandemic, they will have an exposure, so it's good to be prepared. Fantastic. Brittany, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us. You're welcome. Great. So it's, it's my great pleasure now to have uh, 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 Mr. David Bash uh, speak. He's an award-winning educator, uh, developer of uh, many powerful and impact pro impactful programs in STEM, uh, and uh, he is a science teacher uh, here in Southern California, an award-winning uh, uh, teacher who's uh, also been uh, at the from the the very beginning, uh, a teacher of our program uh, for bystander care, which has expanded into the COVID space for the eight leading causes of uh, preventable death for emergencies, what to do in the first 10 minutes, and we've been teaching kids from third grade on up. Uh, it's been a joy to, to uh, work with him, and of note is the fact that he saved the first life uh, with MedTech. We hadn't even graduated our first class. He learned a technique on a Thursday and saved a life on a Saturday. So um, I'm asking uh, uh, Mr. Bash to help uh, recap cap for us the concept of the chief family officer, what we call the CFO, and then talk about what we can do uh, with our kids to put together uh, our family safety plans. David? Excellent. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a, a pleasure to be here with everyone. Um, so as, as, as chief family officers, as CFOs, we, as we all know, we wear many different hats. And one of the many hats that you're going to have to put on and wear and wear with, with fidelity is being the chief educator in the family. And we all know that um, with the ever-changing world out there, the information that seems to be changing on a day-to-day -day basis, young children, you know, re-acclimating back to school and what are the processes with that and how, how much should we be kind of letting other friends come to the house and what do play dates look like? There are a lot of questions. And with a lot of questions come a lot of emotions. And as an educator, that's the number one thing that I need to keep in mind when I'm educating children and other people is managing emotions because emotions can get in the way of learning. Emotions can get in the way of, of teaching. And so the number one thing is you're, is the chief family officer and, you know, i.e. the chief educating officer, is to make sure that we're keeping everybody's emotions under control. And that for me, the, the most effective way that you can do that is with honesty and with clear, direct communication. So as a chief family officer, when you're putting together your family plan, number one is you need to make sure you're doing your homework. You need to make sure you're reading. You need to make sure that you're taking notes. You need to make sure that you are digesting the information so it works for you so that you're able to effectively, calmly, and clearly, and honestly disseminate that information to the rest of your family. Um, as what you can see in this picture here, I love this picture because it really does show how involved everyone in the family really is. You've got the young child there coloring in her coloring book. You've got the dad taking notes. You can see everybody's engaged. This is what this is what the plan and this is what the sharing of the plan should look like. MedTech, we have the all teach, all learn model, and I think it's really important that everybody understands their role in the plan. And I don't think that we need to run from from facts that may seem scary to even the youngest children. Children, I think one of the things that has come up the most in this whole process of, of, of COVID is just how truly resilient children are. And I think if we give them the information, honestly, at their level, that they can digest it, and then we're going to see emotions start to go down, and everyone's going to have a better idea as to what they're doing. So sharing information as the chief educating officer of your family is critically important. Make sure everybody understands why you have a plan. Make sure everybody understands all of the points of the plan, and let them understand the, the, the severity of the plan, like how this plan can really truly be important and such a, uh, an impactful 
portion of our life if, if somebody in our family does need need um, need treatment. Um, and like like Dr. Boat said, I think it's an incredibly important point is the deliberate practice. You cannot just put out the plan, have a family meeting around the kitchen table, talk about what's going on, and then put this on a shelf. This is something that needs to be revisited. This is something that everybody needs to make sure that they understand what everybody else's roles are in the plan, not just their own. And you need to practice it deliberately. Make it a make it a bi-monthly thing. Make it a weekly thing. If information changes that you feel is, is important for everyone to know, convene a quick family meeting. Hey, guys, we need to make a, an edit to our family plan regarding, you know, coronavirus. Here's what's going on. Here's what we're being told. Here's how this impacts us. Excellent. And let's practice it. Make sure everybody can tell you what their role is. Everybody can show you where certain things around the house are. And as the chief educator, one of the biggest things that we can do is we can put together these plans. We can share it. We can feel really good. The kids look like they're getting it. You feel good. You kind of feel like, you know, you've done your role really well. But one of the best things you need to do is you need to be listening. And if you're giving your family an opportunity to share their roles, you oftentimes will hear information. Your kids will teach you way more than you've ever taught them. I can tell you that on a daily basis. Listen to what the feedback they're giving you. They'll sometimes come up with these wonderful statements, phraseologies that work for your family. Adopt it. They'll tell you, hey, daddy, hey, mommy, this seems kind of weird. I, I don't quite understand this. Why are we doing things this way? That's a cue to you that you need to probably adjust something. You need to either adjust what you're telling them, the information, or you need to adjust the actual processes. So as a chief family educator, number one thing you need to do is do your homework, understand what you need to do, make sure everyone is involved, give everybody a role, give everybody a say, have deliberate practice, and be a good listener. Being a good listener to everyone in the family is a great way to modify plans that best fit you and your family because there is no one plan that fits all for everybody. We all know that every family is different. Every family has nuanced changes that they need to uh, be accountable for, and that's, that's the thing that you need to manage the most. Thank you very much. Thank you, David, uh, and really appreciate uh, uh, your help. I, I, it's shocking. It's, I think it's been shocking to you and I how much our third graders and fourth graders actually learn and how much they can put to work and how comfortable they are and that they're not scared when we talk about saving lives. I think you and I have been really shocked when we teach CPR, uh, automatic defibrillators, how to use uh, a tourniquets, uh, and not only are you a gifted teacher, but a gifted demonstrator. And I think just making games out of things, which we see on the slide, yes. and a couple of your other ideas of using icons to make things more friendly, kind of have been really great. The other thing is role playing. I think. Uh, right. Do you want to just be up just quick? couple of seconds just on when we have a graduation from MedTech, how we demonstrate and have them play out a scenario in front of their parents. You want to just recap that? Oh, yes, please. Thank you for bringing up those other points about gamifying and, and, and icons and things. That's important points as well. So the, the role-playing part, I think, is part of the all-teach-all-learn model. So at the end of every um, MedTech session, we have students uh, present and teach and show the parents what they've learned. We'll have one or two students demonstrating CPR, one or two students demonstrating bleeding control. And this goes all the way down to incoming third-grade students. These are young children that are hosting these wonderful little uh, live sessions for their parents, teaching them how to do these you know, somewhat complicated actions. And 
Dr. Denham, the, the only way that we're able to do this is that if everybody is teaching and everyone is learning, it goes back to that everyone has a role in this. And don't pigeonhole people. Put take people out of their comfort zones. If some, you know, like you see in this family here, have the boy in the in the dark shirt take over the role of the boy in the pattern shirt, and have the little girl try to tell daddy what mommy's job is. Give everybody ownership and role playing. It's a great way to solidify. It's a great way to identify gaps and understanding where you can really teach into gaps that you'll be noticing from people and it just creates a bond and a sense of unity and 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 it makes the whole thing kind of fun and it again it's a part of being deliberate and it's a part of really having that practice i think it's a critical aspect to do thank you david and one part i left out so that i could add that at the end is that you're one of our role model uh, eagle scouts and we have a scout and faith-based group uh, at the end of the webinar. I know you're heading back to teach at school, and we're so grateful. But uh, thank you for also the leadership there. We really think that there's an enormous role that uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and membership uh, faith-based organizations can play in stimulating and broadening and making more, uh, making people aware of what they need to do because our public health education has really failed in the in the United States. Uh, so uh, you know it's something our communities need to do. So David, thank you so much for your time. We'll let you get back to teaching science and what your math. Thank you. Uh, take care. So. Kyle Kemp, would you please, uh, uh, we're going to uh, now uh, hear from Paul Bataya. Paul is a very gifted pre-med student. Uh, we've been working with him over the last couple of years here at UCI, University of California, Irvine, along with uh, Randy Steiner, and uh, who you'll hear from shortly, as well as the emergency uh, medicine department here in California. And uh, Paul is, a, is a, a very gifted instructor. He's an EMT, and he'll share his story. He actually did get COVID, and he'll tell you how that might impact or might have impacted his uh, his approach at a family plan. Kyle? So, Paul, as an EMT, how are you putting together your living plan or your family plan? So it starts off with uh, with getting to the drawing board, right? You have to have uh, have to identify that chief family officer, that CFO in your household. For my household, uh, that's me because I'm the most medically oriented individual. Uh, my mom works in, in mortgage. My brother is 12 years old, and I have a dog. Um, and uh, once once you kind of identify that individual, you have to have a plan and put it in writing. Um, so, so I, I went ahead and drafted everything from um, identifying the uh, the threat profile of each member of my family. Um, and, uh, and, and seeing how we can kind of structure our, our, our apartment household um, as needed, depending on, let's say, I come home and I'm, I'm starting to become symptomatic or somebody else like my brother or my mother comes home and they're symptomatic. Um, and, uh, and, and, and essentially, take that and put it in writing, and we have it placed on our fridge. We have it placed kind of everywhere around the household and really kind of drill that through each family member, my mom, my brother, and I, just over and over again repeatedly. Um, and, uh, and, and essentially, the, the idea is, um, you know, let's say me, I might be considered the most high risk out of my entire family, right, um, because of the, the exposure that uh, EMS faces. Um, and, and as in, in previous webinars that we've had here, um, uh, you have to, again, mark out that, that hot zone, that warm zone, and cold zone. So for us, the warm zone is going to be our, our patio area outside the front, your, uh, front door. And, um, and, and from there, you know, keep, keep track of, of, of essentially – putting distance between you and and those around you and your family. Fantastic. Now, have you put together a strategy if uh, someone is sick and COVID positive who has to be in isolation? Yeah. So, actually, um, 
I started having symptoms not too long ago, uh, about a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so it started with some couple, a uh, couple of interesting symptoms. I got a little bit fatigued. Then I got an actual fever uh, around a 101, 102. Um, I scheduled myself for a COVID test. It ended up coming up positive. But what we did as soon as I figured out that uh, I actually had symptoms was we put the plan in motion, right? So uh, our plan was uh, my room. My, my room would essentially be my kind of isolation room. Um, and I would uh, really only come out for, for things like um, food when no one else is in that same shared area. And we would have a pretty strict cleaning and sanitizing regimen. Um, and, that's, uh, and that's pretty much it for the most part. How about masks? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Masks were number one the entire time. Uh, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, I have a, I have like 50 or so, 50 to 100 masks just in my room, and we have some scattered around the house in our vehicles. Fantastic. So you really put the plan to work, and then you had to, uh, you, you planned the flight and flew the plan. We, plan, we planned the flight and flew the plan, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, thank you, Paul, so much, and thanks uh, for all you do uh, in our MedTech program to help instruct and, uh, and to help those uh, students at UCI. You're a terrific guy. Yeah, I, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So our next speaker is uh, a very, very gifted and well-educated and probably one of the best educated people that we could ever have speak to us because he's an emergency medicine doctor. He is the head of staff safety as well as the director of emergency medicine at the Mayo Clinic. The largest Mayo Clinic is in Rochester, Minnesota, where he lives. Uh, and he also has a PhD in microbiology and immunology, which is right in the sweet spot of where this virus is targeting us. So he's somebody who takes care of COVID-19 patients. He's someone who is responsible for the safety of the caregivers, and he's someone who is one of our top researchers and, and top leaders in infection. And we frequently have talked had him before the COVID crisis speak to us about sepsis, which is the overwhelming serious infections that we can get uh, when, when we're very sick in the hospital. So uh, we'll hear from him. He's in the uh, emergency department now, so we recorded him last night. Thank you so much, Dr. Clemens, for sharing your time with us today. What's your message for our audience? Thanks for having me, Chuck. I really want to chime in and help stress the importance of making a plan for what-if scenarios. Your family is one of, if not the greatest concern that I hear from critical essential workers. They say things like, I don't want to bring this home to my family. In fact, I've had five calls this week from friends across the country who've had either exposures or actual infections asking me, well, what do I do now? And a lot of the stress of those situations can be offloaded if we make a plan up front. I think it's important to realize that the majority of household contacts don't actually get infected if precautions are taken, even if one of your family members gets infected. And this is important in understanding the differences and needs of isolation and quarantine. Now, we're used to talking about quarantine where you sort of stay away from public places um, and hold up in your house. Isolation is even a step further than that, where someone who's infected or has a high-risk um, exposure may sort of sequester themselves away. Oftentimes, this can be in something like a bedroom with an adjoining bathroom, and really, they may not leave that area for several days. It's important to do some of these things to protect other people in the household, and particularly the elderly and medically frail. Uh, in last month's uh, webinar, they talked about family unit threat profiles to help identify those people, and you may want to go back and watch that or check it out 
in order to help identify who that may be within your family. Um, you have to understand how long a quarantine may be in a given situation, and that could vary. Um, and you have to think about where will an exposed family member um, isolate themselves. And there's some big details to think about in making these plans. When should you seek help in an emergency department or even need to be hospitalized? In my specialty, emergency medicine, we deal with this all the time. And some of the danger signs can be severe shortness of breath, confusion, or even lightheadedness to the point that you feel like you might pass out. You know, what could happen when you go to an emergency department or hospital should also be, you should be aware of and to have in that plan. You may not be able to visit your family members, but it's important to stay in contact with their care team. A lot that's in these plans are actually mundane details. How are you going to get groceries to the home? How are you going to retrieve and clean dishes and laundry from someone who's in isolation? Um, the CDC has some guidance on that, and that can be discussed as a part of your family plan. And, and just in summation, I want to thank um, uh, you, Chuck, and, and the rest of your team for, for really shining a light on this. This is a very practical topic uh, that needs to be covered for lots of us. Well, thank you so much, and as a leader of emergency medicine at our top hospital in America, for you to take the time to help us, thank you so much. We're so grateful. Yep, everybody stay safe. So uh, I just want to remind those that have not watched uh, to go back and listen to Dr. Christopher Peabody, who's uh, I've actually been uh, uh, we've been working with since uh, for almost a decade when we were both at Harvard. He I was an advanced leadership fellow and he was a and on faculty and he was a medical student. He's now an associate uh, professor of emergency medicine at UCSF. And we went through the five rights of emergency care. Make sure to watch that on our web on our uh, website uh, or in the last webinar, and it'll go through the details of how much different the whole experience of going to the emergency department is. If you haven't been during the coronavirus crisis, you'll be shocked. You will not be able to go in with your loved one. You'll have to remain in the parking lot. It'll be very hard to communicate, and uh, uh, there are some really great tips that you should put into your plan. And so speaking about Mayo Clinic, Matt Horace is the chief security officer for all of the Mayo Clinic. He's a best-selling author. He has an extensive law enforcement background and history. Uh, and also he's had uh, two of his, his two children. Both went to West Point, and he'll share a little bit of his story. He also got COVID from a family member. So, uh, Kyle, would you please roll tape? Really appreciate uh, you taking the time to record this. So the family safety plan and the first R of readiness, but. Well, I think that it's important that we treat this the way it should be treated by making sure that the people who are most important in our lives get, are safe and healthy and remain safe and healthy. And the way we do that is by being ready for any and everything. And then response and in your law enforcement officers uh, the opportunity for them to understand that they might bring the virus home or someone might bring that virus home to their family and knowing what to do if somebody gets sick. Right. Well, there are two aspects of that. There's the aspect of recognizing what the threats are, how do you respond to potential exposure, but then what to do if you've identified an exposure on your behalf or someone in your family, how to respond as a family to make sure that the rest of the family doesn't suffer the, suffer the same consequence. 
And then if a contact tracer contacts your family or uh, your essential critical worker or teacher or anyone is notified that they've been in contact with someone for longer than 15 minutes uh, within six feet, knowing the difference between quarantine, isolation, and the purpose of testing, right? Right. Well, you know, at that point, the world must stop. You have to pivot and revisit everything that you've done during the last 24 hours, revisit who you've been around, who you've been exposed to, but also then you treat your family in a whole different way as not to place them at risk. So at the third, uh, the third R is rescue and having experienced the COVID, having the COVID experience yourself, how important is it, is it that the family really understand what to do when severe symptoms develop and the, the, the care regarding those to know when to go to the emergency department? Well, I think out of the five, it may be the most important because that is at that point, it's incumbent upon you. If you identified symptoms, you need to speak to a physician. You need to understand collaboratively what those symptoms mean and what to do next. There's a what next factor. Do you isolate? Do you quarantine? Does someone else in your family have the symptoms? How do you isolate and how do you quarantine in a house? These things aren't easy, but they're definitely possible and they're essential to make sure that you don't have a mass spread event in your own home. And the, the severe symptoms of shortness of breath and the other problems, even though you're, you work at the number one hospital in America by U.S. Uh, News World Report ranking, but for you to know when to go in and not to go in is critical. Well, you know, that is very true, but you also need to know when you stop the world and make that call and say, I'm having symptoms, uh, take your temperature. If you have a temperature above a certain amount, you got to stop the world. You have a cough, you have dizziness, you have headaches, you can't sleep, you have diarrhea. you got to understand in this pandemic world we live in right now, all of those things matter. So you're an expert in threat management. Talk about recovery and how, as a family, we can look at the, the recovery process to get back to normal, which you would do. Right. Well, you have to treat this, I think, just like you would any other threat. You have to evaluate the conditions of threat, what caused those conditions, and how to mitigate those threats as you move forward. And the list could be many, but if you ignore it, you don't stand a chance. If you acknowledge it, you treat this threat just as you would any other major threat. And so important as you gradually get back to work. The final R is resilience. And in the field of anti-terrorism, when dealing with active shooter events and, and law enforcement, we call it target hardening. What are your thoughts regarding developing resilience for the next wave or surge or epidemic or even storm or uh, a national emergency? Well, all of these things should go into your family resilience toolbox, if you will, because once you get through a crisis and once you've mitigated a threat, you have to, it should help you prepare for the next round. And I treat it like this. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And when the unthinkable occurs, you, your family, just like a business, you need business continuity and resiliency. Your family needs to be resilient and recover from the effects and impacts of a bad event. So you have to treat it like you must survive, you must be resilient, we have to live, and we have to maintain that family structure uh, and get prepared for the next time. So finally, your message to the general public regarding putting a family plan together. Put your family first. Work is one thing, family is, family is another thing. Put your family first. Make sure you protect family. It will make you a better, more productive, and more efficient employee. Thank you, Matt. Have a great day, Chuck, and thank you for having me. So uh, 
we have a second, we have from the two leading uh, hospitals, number one ranked hospitals in the country, uh, one in cancer, one in general uh, medicine, Mayo Clinic, and uh, in cancer is MD Anderson, is chief uh, Bill Adcox. Uh, he is a close partner of, uh, of Dr. Boats and I in the work on MedTAC and the MedTAC Standard Rescue Care Program. His, his law enforcement officers and security officers are part of our study uh, that we're undertaking and we're now north of 500 responses heading to 1,000. We want you to take our survey at the end of this uh, webinar and we're studying each of these five R's. Uh, Chief Adcox, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. You're a pioneer of threat safety science. What would you like to add what, to what Matt had said and what, uh, what uh, Dr. Boats and the other speakers have said? Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you so much for allowing me to participate. Um, I think uh, Matt and, and Dr. Boats and everyone has added so much. Um, uh, I just want to make a couple of small points. First off, uh, when we talk about readiness, um, and going back to, to our top educator in David uh, Besh, Mr. Besh, um, he talked about the children and communicating. And, and I got and I must tell everybody that uh, it's very important that we talk to our children and not at them. And we get into a mode where we get stressed and we just start wanting to pump out information. And sometimes we don't take that time, like uh, David said, to stop and listen. So take your time, be serious, but be calm and make sure it is a family affair and that it's a two-way communication. The other thing we talk about is, is, is being ready and, and it's um, target hardening. And in, in the um, uh, uh, community, when we talk about crime prevention, they, they usually talk about the, the, the crime prevention triangle where you have to have desire, ability, and opportunity. You have to have all three of those things present in order for there to be an adverse event of a crime. And so if we can take away the opportunity, meaning if we can harden and, and, and prevent the virus from, from even, uh, you know, approaching or getting into our home and to our families, uh, then we're not going to have that problem. And so that's going to be extremely critical. And so that, I think that that's very important. I also will tell you that, that when we talk about resilience and, and coming back to it, we have to do uh, best practices. And we talked about from Dr. Boats, talked about, highly reliable families, highly reliable organizations. Uh, we have to go back and do an after action or as in the medical profession they do, they call it post-mortems where you kind of review everything, everything that went right and everything that didn't go right or maybe some gaps, what we call near misses. That's going to be very critical for us to do that. And and we also got to remember that you have to be, that's going to be part of your planning. So if you fail to plan, you're basically planning to fail. And so planning is going to be very, very critical. Uh, the last thing I will say, um, it's all about stress. And you're as first responders, as and, and you know, as a as a parent, as a first responder, as a teacher, whatever it might be, um, you know, there's there's critical there's critical incidents that happen in our lifetime. Most of the average persons in our great country will will experience one and a half, maybe two critical incidents in a lifetime. Those on the front lines of first responders and so forth, you're gonna you're gonna experience 800 plus. And that's going to be extremely highly stressful, and it takes a lot to get past each and every one of those critical incidents. So think about it. As a first responder, you're, you're going through these things, and you're seeing these, these, these bad events, and then you're coming home, and, again, you're not, you're, you're not having that opportunity to de-stress. And the way you're going to do that is you've got to plan for your family. Take care of your family first. You're not going to be any good to anyone else if you're, not, if you're personally are not healthy, and, secondly, if your family's not taken care of. And I'd say that about everybody. So if you have a good plan in place, if you pay attention to the five R's, 
readiness, response, rescue, recovery, resilience. And you really pay attention to this material that's offered here today, and it's it's on the, the, the website. Uh, you're going to de-stress a lot in your life, and you're going to be more effective. You're not going to miss things, and you're going to be able to, to have early intervention and pick up on things. And that's what threat science is all about. It's, it's, it's being able to see these threats early and being able to take care of them before they become a, a really bad situation. So I, I want to thank... Uh, everybody for for what they've done today this is a fabulous program and and i, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to participate thank you and, and bill let us thank you also for your folks that are right on the front line you're taking care of the sickest patients uh uh you know as a cancer doctor uh, i know how sick the patients are and the families that you take care of and uh, you're really pioneering at so many different things de-escalation and being able to to really lead the way in law enforcement at a time when it's pretty tough and then you've got the added risk of COVID. and thank you for bringing up your law enforcement officers and we just want to thank the families right now of those that are caregivers um, and frontline uh, folks because we know you're at higher risk. And that brings me to uh, to a wonderful person, uh, a, a Heather Foster, who's also another uh, national award-winning um, uh, leader who is a practicing nurse. She's the one that is putting herself and her family on the line every day when she goes in to take care of patients. Uh, she's a trained infection preventionist. And Heather has helped us as you get deeper with us in our community of practice and as we move into part two of building your family safety plan and we get into the real nitty-gritty detail of how to put together an isolation room and how to take care of someone who's really sick in your home if you have to do that or you have to help another family member or you're a scout teaching uh, a troop uh, about that and and delivering community service it's heather and dr boats and other uh, of the scientists that have worked with us that help put that curricular work together so heather thank you very much for that work that they haven't seen yet but uh, Heather, what would you like to add now as a practicing nurse, your message to other frontline caregivers uh, as well as families? Because you see both sides of it. You're a caregiver of people that are sick in the hospital, and you're also a mom, and you're taking care of a family. You kind of see both sides. Yes, thank you, Chuck. Um, I think we do. Those of us that are that are working on the front lines, um, I hear I hear both sides. I wish we could just all get infected, let's move on. And then I hear, you know, the stance of, wait, we, we need to be a little bit more cautious. I think, you know, what, what I fear is I think about, we just had a patient this week um, who had known COVID but was still um, roaming the community. Um, I, I think we're, we're still not getting through to everybody, especially those who feel like they're not sick. So we know that there's going to be a majority of carriers that are, um, are pretty much our biggest spreaders. Um, we, we have to really, I think, target that population group, um, albite carefully. Um, and, and with that, Chuck, I, I think as we embark on the next wave, I think we're starting to see that um, we really have to, it's going to really test our, test our endurance. And that, that's where I think the resilience is going to be strengthened. I think we're all tired. I think we're all excited as things are starting to open up, but we're starting to see a little bit of an uptake there, um, like like you said, in New York City. So people are tired, but this is where we're going to have to dig deep in the family setting, in our work area, and it's going to be vitally important that we support one another 
towards just a common goal, and that is eventually herd immunity. Um, so I, I hope that helps. Uh, I think we're all on the we're all on the front line. We really are. Well, thank you. Thank you, Heather, and hang in there. We, we, after we speak with our uh, our college and young adult group and our scout and faith-based group, uh, I look forward to your comments uh, you know, at the end because uh, we're moving into this uh, new knowledge about spread. So what I'm going to do, thank you, Heather, so much. Uh, I'm going to move quickly through a few slides to set up our young adult or, uh, group, but I want to remind you that the study that we're undertaking now, and we, we are surveying you at the end of this, and please, if you would, uh, fill in our survey when we get to it, uh, we're covering the five R's. We're we studying how prepared families are, and then what do they need? We have free text entry, and as I say, we have over 500 responses. We're heading to 1,000, and we're so grateful for MD Anderson, Mayo, UCSF, UCI. We also have some federal law enforcement agencies, and we won't use their names just out of you know, proper respect, but we have a number of organizations as well that are sharing that. So when you say, well, well, Dr. Denham, Chuck, what, what have you learned from this study and this work over the, since March? And what we've learned is that the family unit is the Achilles heel. This is what is defeating us. It's not, it's not actually uh, Heather at work wear, uh, wearing her mask, practicing hand hygiene, being, being very careful with her patients. It could be the Heathers of the world, our nurses or our law enforcement officers or any of the 17 industry sectors, now teachers, that are coming home and getting it from another family member unsuspectingly because they feel like they're a little more safe at home, and that's why we have to train the family unit. So what we've learned, our discovery is, Family unit training works, and that's not only and a family unit. When we now we're talking about college students, you might have two family units. You have your family living unit at college. At, uh, at we'll be hearing from Danny Policicio at, uh, at 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 NYU at film school there, and with roommates as well as uh, people at UCI as as well as other places. And you actually have to have two family plans. But what we've learned is that if we focus on the family unit, we can save. Uh, uh, we can really have an enormous impact. When we talk about our family unit, we're talking about um, when you're going home, every one of the people in your it, who you live with are moving through the community from school, uh, work, uh, uh, going to visit uh, uh, elderly people at a, at, a, at, a, um, at, a, at a retirement home. And so what we've learned is we can't just train the essential infrastructure workers alone. It will not work. We have the family unit is the Achilles heel. That's why we're so grateful we have so many family members of those of you that are part of this, our, our critical infrastructure that have to go to work no matter what. That's putting food on the table, grocery, grocery chains, uh, retail, information technology, transportation. If we save the family unit, we save the worker. If we save the family units across our communities, we can save our nation. This is the heat map from Johns Hopkins that shows our infection rate. Look at Canada where I lived for some time, and the United States, and two different sets of behaviors. And you can see, and although they have 10% of our population, you can see the enormous focus. So we really can save our, save our nation if we focus on the entire family unit and transmission. That's social distancing, and there are new things in that. When you go to our website, you can watch a short video, 13 minutes, on the latest on social distancing. We have a 26-minute, 27-minute video on the science behind masks. 
how to pick them, which ones to use, how they work, how you can make sure to have them be, become more effective. Uh, and uh, we've had leading scientists help uh, with these. Hand washing and why it's so important and how soap works. And this is something we could teach right down to our kids. Why it's 20 seconds, why soap and water is, is better than just about anything you can use to clean your hands, and that high, high contact surfaces. Um, there was some misinformation out on the web that said, oh, you don't, you don't have to worry about con high contact surfaces. It was misinformation. Actually, you don't have to worry about it as much, but it is a transmission, mode of transmission, absolutely positively. So although we don't need to obsess uh, uh, on disinfection, we really need to maintain that. And then many of you are going to end up with family members that are in the ICU on respirators and, and on something called ECMO, which is the artificial lung. So we have an, an eight-minute video to kind of walk you through that. We have a series of publications that we'll be putting out. This is the one on, on the science of masks, and it has the narrative that goes along with the video so that you can kind of follow it. And uh, the key issue on aerosols and droplets, the science every day is growing to show the aerosols, meaning that under a certain size, five mi microns, over five microns are droplets, under five microns when you breathe, all of the fluid is evaporated, and then the virus floats in the air and float much farther than six feet. This is why we don't want to go into poorly ventilated areas. We have to be very, very careful. When we go on a flight from one place to another, we say, well, they've got HEPA filters on the airplane, but they don't in the jetway. They don't in the bathrooms. And so uh, aerosols are the tiny particles that are there. We also address uh, which the choice of masks and why some masks work better than others and why a, sur a good surgical mask that's well fitted can be as good as anything that you can use because you really need a fit test for the N95 mask. So it's a real pleasure now to, to listen from our super spreader group and they acknowledge that they're super spreaders and they know now they're starting to realize that they can have a real role in helping us understand what to do and put together um, the, the strategies for a safety plan that would be their, their home safety plan away from home when they're at college. And so Jamie uh, Iristorza is a pre-med student, uh, a terrific young man, an Eagle Scout, and I think has a great grasp. We're putting up for him first. He has a great grasp of uh, where we are in his age group. Kyle, would you roll tape? So Jamie, what do you think of the concept of the five R's and thinking about your family, your family away from home, home away from home when you're in college? Well, I think it's a really excellent plan that people should be aware of because it's really simple, five R's, it's really easy to remember. And developing these plans and these response patterns is really, really critical in finding a way to make a safety, or to make a safety plan and make sure that your family is safe during this very um, tumultuous time. So what about the first R, uh, readiness? Being able to work with roommates and your family at home uh, to be ready to respond if someone does get sick or is exposed to the virus and we need to quarantine or isolate? So I grew up in the Boy Scouts, and the Boy Scouts always say, be prepared. Um, I think that's a really phenomenal philosophy for all of life. And especially in this time, you know, you to solve a problem, you really have to understand the parameters that surround it. And so readiness and being, under, being ready to understand um, the ways that you need to solve the problem is really, really critical. So what about response? Do you think the college students and graduate students that you know uh, would know how to respond if somebody was sick with COVID or 
COVID positive but asymptomatic or was exposed in a contact tracer, contacted them and said, hey, listen, you need to go into quarantine? Uh, to be honest, I don't think so. I think a lot of college students will respond to this uh, as they would respond to any other sickness. Like when I got the flu at college, my roommate would probably respond to me getting COVID in the same way that um, he responded to me getting, getting the flu. There's a lot of really specific things about mitigating the spread that is, are specific to this specific disease in place and time that aren't um, exactly universal um, as, as the way young people would deal with sick um, peers and for other diseases. So I think educating the specific tools that you need to be prepared to deal with um, COVID patients is, is really something that everybody should know. So now let's talk about rescue. Let's presume that you have a roommate or a family member, and I think uh, your age group, the super spreaders, 18 to 25, uh, need to not only know what to do at college or when they're in a living unit, but also what they need to do when they're uh, uh, at home. Uh, what about rescue? How prepared do you think the college students are uh, regarding being prepared uh, to rescue somebody if uh, a family member gets severe symptoms? I think that's pretty minimal, and I think that kind of stems from the fact that most college students, I think, have the mindset that if they get the disease, it's not going to be serious. And so the, the, the potential that you might have to deal with someone going to the hospital and you might have to deal with someone getting severely sick, um, it's not really on the forefront of a lot of the young people's minds, and so that's also very important to be aware of. Now, how about the fourth R, recovery? Yeah, getting back to normal after quarantine, isolation, hospitalization, or a family member gets sick. Um, again, I think, you know, to all of us, the end of this thing seems so far away. So recovering and going back to normal is also something that we really need to keep in mind if we're going to have a healthy outlook on this disease, because there will be an end, and we need to be able to understand that, you know, your life cannot go down the dumps. There needs to be a way to return back to normalcy no matter what happens. Now, the final R is resilience, and in anti-terrorism and the work we do in active shooter events and that kind of thing, we, we call this target hardening. Uh, do you think that there's value and think that college students will relate to the idea of then being in a, in a hardening the target and making us more resilient to the next wave, this epidemic, pandemic, or the next uh, national disaster that might even be a hurricane? I think that's one of the most important things that we need to keep in mind because when you deal with crises like this, you either prevent it altogether, but because we can't prevent COVID and it's already here, the best we can do is to reduce the impact that it's already had. So to be more resilient and to, to target harden, as you said, is really something that is going to, A, shorten the wave, but also make the rest of the pandemic more bearable for all of us. Jamie, many thanks. We wish you luck in medical school. Thank you very much. So Jacqueline Boats is uh, is a uh, uh, a student at Chapman University. She's an opera singer, uh, very accomplished, and and we've asked her her perspective out here in California. So Jacqueline, you're a voice performance student at Chapman University, and perhaps have some unique needs, as many do, regarding this COVID environment. What are your thoughts about the five R's and readiness? Well, I am not ready. You know, if my housemate were to be exposed and come home and then expose me to the virus, I, I don't know what I would do. And I think that's something that people my age need to be educated on, perhaps through the university or even through watching this webinar. 
So having a checklist for readiness and then even response would be important. Would you know what to do if somebody, a tracer called and said, you've now been exposed to somebody who's positive and now you need to go into quarantine or you were told by your doctor you need to be in isolation, would you know the difference? I, I, would, I wouldn't know the difference between them, but I know I would be staying home um, and not going to see you know, my grandparents or any of my friends for sure. So what about response? If somebody were to be sick in your living unit or notified that they'd been exposed and needed to quarantine? I'm not sure most of us would know what to do if someone got sick. Um, I'm not sure if they even know the difference between quarantine and isolation. So um, that's something that we definitely need to discuss. What about rescue? I'm almost certain most of us wouldn't know how to safely get someone to the emergency department while keeping ourselves safe. What about recovery? I think recovery is important and it's good to have a plan. What about resilience? You know, I've lived in Houston for a really long time, and I've been through quite a few hurricanes. So resilience is very important, and so are all of the five R's. Great. And so Claire Peck is an NYU student who couldn't be on today, but we kind of talked about the dilemma that they face uh, when they have to travel at long distances and they're trying to figure out whether to go home or not. And the fact that their their family plan needs to be geographically much broader because they have to include transportation. Kyle, would you roll? So Claire, let's address this idea of a family safety plan. Not only the family safety plan of your family at home, like where you are, where your family is in Hawaii, such a great distance from where you are in New York, but also your, your home away from home family are the roommates that college students have uh, where they are. And let's talk about the higher risk uh, people that we know that we need to protect. What's your message to college students about those that are more vulnerable and the role that college students can play with a plan like this? So I do, uh, I do agree that there should be two plans, and they're, they look a bit different. So in my current situation, living in New York City with two people of my age group, there isn't that problem of a um, person at risk. However, I am in a big city where you shouldn't really be going out unless you really need to for medical reasons or food or that. But going back home, that plan is a lot different because you're living with your family where you have more resources um, and you're living with your family, which means you have more people at risk. And you're coming from a place like college, a big city, where you can't take chances like that, especially on airplanes if you're traveling. You need to be prepared and ready for each of those two steps. So, Claire, you live in New York City, and you have to travel a great distance to get home to your family in Hawaii. This brings up the issue of whether the plan needs to include activities outside of the boundaries of your home or your dorm or your apartment. Yes, uh, especially when we come back home to our families, we'll need to be extra, extra careful and extra prepared. And I know a lot of kids are in the same boat where you come from college where you know, you're exposed to this bubble and then coming home, exposed to your family bubble. You just need to be really, really vigilant and careful about, you know, your journey there. So, Claire, what about when there are roommates or family members that are at higher risk with underlying illnesses or due to age? Well, while you need to take it seriously regardless, um, that in, in certain cases like that where you're in the same living space as someone who um, is susceptible, more susceptible, um, you need to take it more seriously. That means raise all precautions. Um, even like 
quarantining in different rooms, that could be a possibility if your work demands that you interact with a number of people in the day. You just need to really be careful because it, you're, you're, it's someone in your bubble, you know? You need to take all the precautions necessary. Great. So Perry Bechtel is, uh, is, is actually the leader of our college program for MedTech, which is now, as I say, has expanded dramatically with the coronavirus crisis. Uh, he's a University of Florida senior, and he actually started the program for MedTech in Florida. He travels frequently here to California to be one of our, uh, one of our, uh, leaders and, uh, and teachers. And, uh, Perry, we don't want to kind of travel over the same, uh, same, same, uh, same road that we've covered on the plans. Now, from what you've heard from our law enforcement officers, our uh, physicians, our, our uh, experts in the virus, and, and nurses, and now from the other, other college students, um, what strikes you as the opportunities for us to move forward with our college students? And I'll ask the same question to Danny Policicio and then Preston Head, who's in uh, his uh, uh, later 20s, who's looking back on his, his, his uh, career at UCLA and his uh, workforce career. I'll ask each other the same question. Now that we kind of have this perspective, what do you think we can do to get the message out to get some movement? Perry? Awesome. Thank you for that uh, kind introduction. So when speaking on planning, I think planning is an absolutely essential element given the virus, but also the most overlooked by young people. Um, every high-risk industry profession, planning and preparation is the main tool used for risk mitigation. That needs to be shared because we are in a scenario where there is risk, and I think we just need to treat it as um, like the professionals do. And I think if we spread that message to young people, if we tell them to make a plan, to be prepared, they'll be able to answer kind of a lot of the unknowns. Because as I see it, most young people, if you will say, oh, I'm going to quarantine and stuff, I get it. But that leaves so many questions unanswered, especially kids who live in um, high-concentration housing, maybe a dorm or a sorority or fraternity house. Things like that. They just they'll say they'll quarantine, but they don't answer the questions that need to be answered. Right. Good. Good. Good point. Uh, Danny Policicio, you're an NYU film student along with Claire uh, uh, Peck. Uh, Danny has been uh, a, a producer with us uh, on a number of the films that we've undertaken, and he's uh, been a participant in the teaching that we undertook uh, in middle school uh, and lower schools here in California as we piloted the MedTech program. Danny, your perspective from what you've heard, and, and maybe as a storyteller, how you can get some impact in the college uh, college student category. I wholeheartedly agree with what Perry just said. I mean, we need to have a call to action, and I think if we uh, go something out there towards these students through something like social media, like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, that it would really give a great response over anything else. And I think through social media, we can have the best impact in making everyone aware and getting a plan out there. And you and I had the conversation back when it started where you didn't think that there was much interest in the college students, and I think they're starting to wake up to the super spreader sort of environment, and every paper that comes out, we're now seeing more and more of how the spread in the southeast occurred actually through the college-age group. So it's a, I, think, I think the tide is turning quickly. As we think about that uh, uh, 
Preston. Preston is uh, uh, is one of our master instructors for MedTech. He's a uh, former UCLA a water polo star. He has uh, been a lifeguard. Uh, he's uh, now in business and uh, and can kind of look back on the twenties and the college uh, trajectory. Uh, and Preston, you're you can give us kind of a feel for the for those that are in the workforce that have finished college and that are out there. Uh, what what thoughts do you have about what impact we can have? Because you're still in that super spreader category. Thank you, Dr. Denham. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Excellent. Um, it was funny. Heather's example of people not taking it seriously really struck a familiar chord with me because uh, not even last week, um, I had a very close friend who I am constantly in communication with and in contact with who told me he's been quarantining and that he has COVID. And I, I ended up, I was with him the day after that he essentially came into contact with someone with COVID, got tested, and everything is uh, is good. Um, but it, it just was interesting to see how he really, from just, you know, observing him, he was constantly interacting with people outside of his core group. Um, a lot of people have been traveling, um, and I've really been quite disciplined on trying to keep my network and who I socialize with very tight um, because I do currently live with my family. Um, and to, to think back of, okay, well, developing a plan, I, I at one point was in a state of somewhat panic um, of, okay, I need to get tested right away. When it got tested, came out negative, which was great. But I, at that point, realized, you know, if I had COVID, what would I do um, considering my living situation? I go home, my parents are there, um, and, and exposing them possibly would be a nightmare. So I think, you know, absolutely having a, having a plan that you can execute and put into place if you come into that situation or experience is a must. Um, and, and then once you develop that plan, you know, sharing it with friends, sharing it with family, um, using social media um, to share and spread the importance of preparation. And one request, if I think it would be helpful if, you know, maybe offline if we could share, you know, example plans um, just through this group um, to understand, okay, what, what does a good plan look like? Um, so those are my thoughts. Fantastic, and that's just what we'll be doing in our next uh, next webinar series. Uh, and uh, thank you for, uh, for for that. And and I think uh, you, you and uh, my son Charlie surfing and being out in the you know we've been able to adjust some of our social activities and physical activities. Thank you for uh, for being a mentor there and and for helping us uh, with uh, uh, our program. We'll come back to you in just a, a bit if we have time at the end. But thank you, and you know you've really given us a good perspective of the older age group as these as our folks kind of transition out of college uh, I just dropped in a couple of slides here from our prior program where we talk about covid risk and and, and some of the humorous uh, uh, humorous uh, slides uh, that have uh, and, and images that have been out on the web and I do think we need to use storytelling and especially now as we head towards our scouting group and our and our our faith-based organizations and dealing with younger people and membership organizations that we have to kind of keep it uh, keep it it fairly light. 
uh, so that it doesn't get too uh, scary or serious. I think it's serious, but we need, you know, whatever way we can use storytelling with great people like you, Danny and, and Claire, and, and um, uh, be able to uh, get messages on social media, it'll be helpful. We, we're heading into our final stretch. And I have the, the Boy Scouts, uh, Scout Oath, the Scout Law, and uh, just to tee up, uh, you know, our membership organizations and faith-based organizations. Uh, we'll hear first from Charlie Denham, my son, who's a, a scout of a recording. He's in school right now, but we have uh, Reverend Lester McKenzie, who is uh, one of our faith-based leaders in the community here in Southern California. We have Randy Steiner, who's the head of um, uh, emergency uh, response uh, at the University of California, Irvine who's been a fabulous help. He's a scoutmaster as well as a, a best-selling author, having been through a tragedy earlier in life and, uh, and been able to turn that into his professional career as an emergency uh, preparedness leader. We have Keith Flitner, an aerospace engineer, our advancement chair in our community here for, uh, for, for scouting. And, and I'm going to ask each one of these folks to talk about how in our faith-based and membership organizations can we leverage using the plan planning methodology and the learning to really be able to tackle these networks of scouting and faith-based organizations. And we have John Little, who is uh, one of my heroes, who is uh, one of our um, uh, medical volunteers at my church, Saddleback Church, but also a uh, former police officer and part of the security detail that protects our uh, great leaders. And we have uh, John Tomlinson, who's our uh, committee chair. He is uh, an attorney, uh, has a master's degree in, in business, a business and dedicated community leader as well, and had some great ideas about how we can um, uh, learn more about what we can do in isolation. So as we head on the home stretch here, I'm going to ask Kyle to just play a short clip from Charlie regarding scouting to kind of set the tone for this group on membership and faith-based organizations. I'm a high school freshman, and I've just returned to in-person classes. I'm a Boy Scout now pursuing my Eagle rank. I really believe that the coronavirus crisis provides a great opportunity for scouts and scout leaders to serve their communities. Our scout law provides a guide. At every meeting, we state what a scout is. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Our motto is, be prepared. These are perfect principles we can apply to help our families create our family safety plans. We learn a lot about first aid and emergency preparedness that we can also apply to this work. We can help others in our communities do this as well. Scouts are dedicated to provide community service. So Randy, that's a setup for, you know, you see what we can do in the communities. You're a scout leader. How can we leverage the learning of being able to put these family plans to work and maybe have scout leaders and membership organizations pick up the baton and help in the communities because our public health systems are, are, are so, so stressed that they really can't do this kind of work? Well, Chuck, first of all, thanks, thanks so much for having me on. Um, the, probably one of the best things we can do is, you know, and scouting all about, um, you know, the, 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 the scouting method, and that involves keeping 
uh, you know, the, the patrols together and working at the patrol level. And that's one of the things we're doing in our scout troop is, is encouraging patrols to, um, get together in smaller groups and, and do activities, you know, within the, the COVID guidelines. But really while on those activities, you know, small campouts, you know, observing and really reinforcing those COVID guidelines in the, uh, in the, in the community to say, you know, uh, make sure we stay six feet apart from each other. Make sure we're always wearing face coverings. Make sure that we only have one person per tent where we normally would have two or three per tent. So having the students go through that and, and, or the, uh, the, the scouts go through that and really in, reinforce that, that, that's those safety measures for COVID, but working within that environment, a, 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 acknowledging that, that, you know, it's so important for these scouts to continue to get together and continue to work in the community and really work towards Eagle projects that are designed to help the community. I know, Chuck, you're, you're Eagle scouts down in the, in the coves down in Laguna doing the AED projects, that kind of thing, but with a COVID focus, you know, applying to be, you know, learn how to do contact tracing or how to volunteer at a hospital or do those things in this COVID environment. I think it's a, a great experience for these scouts to, you know, really use the scout law to in, in the real world and, and really apply it. Uh, using those those methods. So the only way we're going to really teach these scouts to be safe out in the real world is to put them in those situations where they're out there, but they feel safe because those those safety precautions are being reinforced constantly. Well, thank you, and, and thank you also for uh, deploying our survey through the UCI uh, officers because it's really helping us know what to do for the for those folks that are at the front line. And thank you for all you do to, to take care of our college students uh, here here in Orange County. Uh, Keith Flitner is an aerospace engineer, a scout leader, Eagle Scout, and our advancement chair for our community here. Terrific guy is just constantly dedicated and uh, creative about what to to, to think about where we could kind of leverage these things. Keith, from what you've heard today, um, ideas about how we could leverage this great network of scouting that we have. We have a lot of scout leaders on today. There we go. Thank you very much. Hey, sorry about that. Yeah, look, scouting is a great program. It starts at kindergarten. It's now available for boys and girls. And it's always been about uh, planning and emergency preparedness and first aid. I remember developing a fire escape plan with my child when he was a, a Tiger Scout at a very young age. And as you look at scouting as it goes up, the, the first aid education first starts off with educating about how to take care of yourself, and then you start learning about how to take care of others. And as you go through the ranks, you add in the service component that was just talked about and service to the, the not only just your family but also your community. Ultimately, it progresses through the Eagle Scout project, which is service to the community. But Incorporating the best practices of safety for COVID at every step of the way is a natural fit within scouting. And again, practicing those good habits, again, while being active in scouting, um, not only sets an example for the youth, but also for their families and for the community itself when they see scouts interacting in a safe way. So again, working with Chuck, we've been uh, proactive in making sure we understand what the latest and um, best practices are and getting them into the scouting world so that, uh, as we say, we keep scouting moving. 
Great, Keith, and thank you for your dedication to this. And uh, one of the things we're working on right now is to be able to leverage tele, uh, tele-education and virtual learning to be able to actually convert our entire MedTech program, including Stop the Bleed programs. And now that we're able to do it with uh, CPR and the American Heart Association, I think there are a lot of ways that scouts can not have to leave their home, put themselves at risk, but also help the rest of the community. So thanks for your dedication and creativity there. Um, uh, moving Absolutely. on to John, John Little is, is one of our most dedicated volunteers in the faith-based community. And a, as I said, a former police officer has probably taken more care of more gunshot wounds than 10 times all the doctors that have been on this, uh, on this phone call and is, uh, is, is uh, constantly serving and is just a role model for service. Uh, John, from what you've heard here, uh, you're representing that kind of, I, I think, a group that we're just not taking care of. And those are our church volunteers, our medical volunteers, our our security volunteers, but the other volunteers that are now going to put themselves at risk as they are ministering to and and helping our faith-based organizations. John, thoughts of what you heard today? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I I want to thank you for, uh, I I think we're kind of wrapping this up, so I I really want to thank you and everybody that's been on the uh, webinar. It's been great. I've listened to every, every single one of them, and I think we've all learned uh, so much. The, the question about the, the faith-based uh, at Saddleback Church, I work for Ch- uh, Saddleback Church, a volunteer there doing the health care and uh, a lot of the uh, uh, protection for the, the pastor, but I think all the churches have to uh, start getting a really good program of uh, health care, and I think once church, churches start to reopen, open i think uh if they join your your pro your program i think that will be really really good and i don't know if people realized how much you've uh you've helped uh the different churches around uh around the the area here uh you've don't donated supplies you've uh helped our church out uh so much and i just really want to thank you for doing that and i want to thank you for uh like you said, putting all these uh, programs on. Well, thank you, John. It's uh, it's your your leadership. You're the role model. So, uh, uh, but I, I really think we can uh, put put some programs together for our churches and the church leaders that are listening. Uh, we have a certification program for MedTech that we're developing that, for that purpose. Uh, Lester McK- McKenzie, Reverend McKenzie, Father McKenzie, I don't know whether you're still on, but I know there's a power failure in Laguna Beach. Uh, but from what you're hearing and the needs that you see as a, as a, as, as one of our faith-based leaders, uh, thoughts regarding what we can do th- through and with our churches? wonder if we've lost uh, Father McKenzie. We know there's a power outage here in Laguna Beach. Speak up if we hear him. We'll, we'll move on. Is, uh, is John Tomlinson still on as well? Yes, I am. John, thank you uh, so much for uh, your uh, uh, your leadership in the community in so many different ways. Uh, we are uh, very, very grateful uh, for all that you've done. And uh, uh, 
we'll just move forward. We got your picture up now. Uh, John uh, is, uh, as I said, he's an attorney. He's a businessman. He's uh, very thoughtful. And I'm putting the pictures up, John, of the isolation chamber that you put together. A really creative idea and something that I think we can, we, that all of us can take advantage of, of thinking how we can creatively create uh, an isolation chamber or isolation room. Do you want to give us a quick recap of what you see on the screen? We've got the pictures of your uh, your trailer and what you did to set up uh, uh, something for your family. Well, after watching Apollo 13, I affectionately call this this uh, 13-foot trailer the limb 2. So <laughs> uh, it's fully self-contained. And I have a generator in, in the age of rolling blackouts during this heat wave. Uh, you can run the generator, and it's silly, fully self-contained, water, shower, stove, microwave, uh, zone restroom. So if someone were to get sick in my family, they could be placed in this unit, and they can be self-sufficient. If it was me, my wife, you know, obviously if my children were in there, I have, to, I have to watch over them. But I've learned a lot today, and, and one of the things I'd like to mention, Chuck, is you're right about the cell phone, because we're all using Zoom and and the biggest commodity mom around my house is a charging cord for your phone. So if you get shipped off to the emergency room, take, take your charging card with you, too, your charging cord with you, too. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've really learned a lot uh, today, and, and it's a good in the last presentation we did, but uh, this is great stuff. And I think that, you know, in our own homes, uh, I have another bedroom that's uh, isolated, and we have to be careful with the the HVAC systems in there because they all have returns. And my house is older and it was retrofitted, so it doesn't have a return in this bedroom because you're now taking air out of that bedroom that's an isolation unit and spreading it through the whole house. So mm. a simple simple roll of duct tape. Always have a, a roll of duct tape or two on hand. And, and a roll of plastic, or in lieu of that, you can use uh, garden trash bags, you know, the, the heavier ones, and you can tape off those vents to return so you're not sucking, you know, potentially, you know, virus-inflicted air into into uh, the system in your house. So that's... Uh, Thank you, John. That's so critical because aerosol is, uh, we're, in cre we're really seeing that that is a critical issue. We're a few minutes over, but we would love it if you could just uh, fill out the survey that uh, Kyle will be putting up right now. And I'll just, uh, I'll just go around the table with, I know, that with, with who is still with us that, uh, that, that are live. Uh, uh, Chief Adcox, anything you want to add? And then we'll go to Perry Bechtel. And Kyle, would you please put the survey up? Uh, and uh, folks, just it would be great to hear from you in a survey on where you think you are on the five R's. Uh, this is Bill Adcox. No, I think everything's been covered. And uh, uh, I do encourage everybody to please take the survey. Uh, we're doing it here in Houston. It's just very critical. And thank everybody. Just really wonderful people, really wonderful information. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Bill. Thank you for all you're doing. Heather, anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, thanks, Chuck. I think you did a great job, and, and I think everyone's on the on the right track here. Um, I think the key is just to continue to educate and and get prepared. Great, Perry Perry Bechtel, you're our team lead for college students. Any any anything you'd like to add? Uh, nothing. I think that was a a really thorough brief, and I love to hear all the different perspectives. Um, 
everything from from press and from looking back as well as as well as at home isolation change I've just shown. I think that was really neat. I think just um, just general education is the best thing and going to get us the furthest. So thank you, Dr. Denham. Fantastic. Danny Policicchio. And uh, this whole issue of coming home and uh, two plans, I think you and Claire could really help us an awful lot for college students that are planning to come back for the holidays and what they need to do. We may have lost Danny. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Preston, any final thoughts? No, that's, thank you so much for, for this uh, webinar. Just the, uh, the example plan is my only request. You've got it for our next webinar. It's exactly what we're going to cover. Randy and Keith, anything you'd like to add? We, you, guys, you, you got to kind of do some sum up here at the end. I'm good. I'm just glad that we can uh, keep kids educated and make them our advocates. I think uh, scouting is a great program for doing that and, and keeping the family engaged. Great, and John and Tom, uh, John and John, you both uh, did a great job. So we are going to close uh, today's uh, webinar. We hope that you'll join us. Spread the word; these are entirely free. And part two of creating the family plan is exactly what Preston had said. We are going to provide examples and worksheets and a step-by-step -step approach with uh, with uh, taking some of our families. Uh, Jennifer, you've been so patient. Jennifer, the last words, and God bless all of you. Thank you. We pray for your safety, and we'll have Jennifer close us, and then we'll finish today's webinar. Jennifer. Thank you, Dr. Denham, and all of our speakers. I learned so much today, as I'm sure all of you as well have. Uh, these webinars are essential for survival, and I strongly encourage everyone here today to please share the recording and invite your friends, family, colleagues, even strangers, neighbors, to these webinars. We're very blessed to have Dr. Denham and his team doing this for us as a country, and I just want to really see these webinars spread because I know they will save lives. God bless everyone. Be healthy, be safe, be careful, and we'll see you next time. Thank you again for being here. Thank you for your attention. We're really excited about our next webinar when we'll go into templates that you can use as college students, as families, as singles, and we'll focus on the specific checklist that you can use to build out your family safety plan. As we always say, fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver.